Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be going through John chapter 17 this morning, looking at verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> Hear the Word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We'll end our reading of God's word there at this time. Let's pray the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge your sovereignty and your great faithfulness throughout history and that you've revealed yourself to your people in various and sundry ways, speaking through prophets and teachers and ultimately, in these last days, through your Son, Jesus Christ, your final word, the living word. And Father, we ask that you would open our hearts, uh, that we may receive your holy gospel with receptivity and understanding. By the power of your Holy Spirit, write your laws upon the tablets of our hearts, that we may walk in obedience and live lives that bring glory to your name. And Lord, we rely on your promises, trusting that as your word goes forth, even now, it will not return empty, but will accomplish what you desire and will achieve the purpose for which you send it. We long for the transformative work of your spirit to take place within each of us, renewing our minds and conforming us more and more to the image of Christ, who is the image of God. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this summer, for the six weeks or so remaining till we get to September, I thought it would be uh, a good use of our time each Sunday morning to go through this chapter of the New Testament. Um, John chapter 17 is uh, arguably one of the profoundest chapters in the Bible. Uh, whole books have been written to attempt to expound it fully. Uh, you may have heard of Thomas Manton, the Puritan. He preached 45 sermons on it. I only have six. And he ended up publishing, when, when those sermons were published as a book, um, it ran for more than 450 pages in small print. I think it's 800 and some pages in the Kindle form. Here is a chapter in which we see our Lord Jesus Christ addressing a long prayer to God the Father, indeed what's been called the most important prayer offered in the, in the entire history of the world. Uh, most Christians know this chapter, this well-known chapter, as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, 
because it was offered just before he made atonement for his people through the, the, his death on the cross. He is mediating or making intercession for himself and for his people as a priest would. In Martin Luther's exposition of this chapter, he confesses, quote, it is indeed a prayer heartfelt and earnest beyond measure in which both to us and to his father, he opens and lays bare the very abyss of his heart. But the, and then Luther continues, but the power and virtue which is contained in this prayer, we shall not, I fear, be able adequately to unfold. For in proportion as it sounds, plain and simple, it is in reality deep, rich, and wide, that which none can fathom, unquote. But we'll attempt to at least glean some lessons from it over the next few weeks. The significance of this prayer may be recognized by noting that it was offered on the very eve of the greatest event in history. It is found in conjunction with the greatest message ever heard in history and its contents involve the greatest experience that history can ever provide. And furthermore, every sentence within this prayer is bound up with the honor and glory of God. Christ's great concern, his, his, uh, super, the, the, the supreme passion of the Son of God is that his Father might be seen and known for who he is, for what he is like, and for all that he has done. The whole prayer consists of 26 verses. Uh, it divides nicely into three main sections. Here in verses 1 through 5, we find Jesus praying for himself, for his being glorified. We'll unpack that further in just a moment. In verses 6 through 19, he's praying particularly for his apostles who were with him at that moment. And then in, in verses 20 through 26, Jesus is found praying for all those who would believe upon him from that day onward. And so our Lord prays first for himself, next for the apostles, and lastly for the entire body of believers in all places and at all times to the end of the world, which would include you and me today. As I said, it'll take us several Sundays to work our way through it. But from the outset this morning, I take a moment to point out that there's one great principle that uh, underlies and, and unites each of these three sections. For when Jesus prays for himself that he may be glorified, it is that he may also glorify the Father by giving eternal life to as many as the Father had given to him. And when he prays for the apostles, it is that they might be the ordained instruments and agents in extending the knowledge of that salvation to the ends of the earth. And when again he commends God, to God all believers, future as well as present, it is because they were to be the objects on whom eternal life was to be bestowed and the vessels through which the glory of God was to be displayed in the salvation of their souls. So that while the general sort of branches of the prayer are, uh, such as I've indicated, the one great overarching principle which unites and pervades them all, I would suggest, is the glory of God in the salvation of his people. It is, in short, a prayer for the manifestation of God's glory in the bestowal of eternal life 
unto all who place their faith in him. And as I said, it's been rightly called Jesus' high priestly prayer because it is indeed the act of the great high priest of the church offering up to God um, offering up to God uh, himself and all his people both present and future. While at the same time it is obvious that this prayer brings down upon them the blessing of God. For what Jesus here asks Jesus surely receives. Remember how Jesus said the Father always hears the Son? So we may be sure that this prayer was answered, is being answered still, and will continue to be answered until God's mercy has brought in the last of those belonging to his Son. Here is a prayer on which Christians may utterly rely. Here's a prayer that retains its power and, and, and efficacy through all the long centuries of Christian history. And it's truly a rich and precious portion of God's word that we have here. No wonder the church has ever regarded it as one of her most precious treasures. And so we should study it with closest attention since these are petitions that seal the certainty of our salvation through faith in Christ. And this morning, we begin our study by looking at the, the first section, verses 1 through 5. In verse 1, we read, Jesus had spoke, when Jesus had spoken these words, these words referring to the whole of the farewell discourse uh, spanning the previous four chapters. So when Jesus had spoken these words, then he, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And with that upward look, he said, Father, the hour has come. Well, what hour? Well, it's the hour appointed in God's eternal counsels for the sacrifice of the death of Christ and for the final accomplishment of that atonement. That time which had been promised by God and expected for centuries ever since Adam's fall had finally arrived. And the seed of the woman was now poised to deliver the decisive blow to the serpent's head by dying as our substitute and redeemer in that great priestly act. Up to this point, that appointed hour had not yet come, and until it had come, the enemies of Christ were unable to inflict harm upon him. But now, at last, at this moment, the hour on which were suspended the, this glory of his Father and the eternal life of his elect, that hour had now struck, and the sacrifice was ready. And what more, therefore, does he now say? Our Lord, he asks his Father to glorify him so that he might glorify the Father in return. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And see, we're here when Jesus asks to be glorified, he's essentially asking the Father to, to reverse the self-emptying entailed in his incarnation and to restore him to the splendor that he shared with the Father before the world existed. The horrible humiliation, the, the shameful the death of his cross will be eclipsed by the glory of resurrection and uh, ascension and 
heavenly session at God's right hand. But we mustn't fail at this point in, in, in considering this prayer to appreciate the paradox, if you will, that I think lies really at the heart of this petition. Because Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him in his crucifixion as well. In, his, in the cross, in, the, in his death. Now the glory of Christ is one of the pervasive themes of John's gospel, with the apostle mentioning the word glory or glorify uh, no fewer than 42 times. John cited Christ's glory along with the other main themes in chapter 1, the so-called prologue of John's gospel, where he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But John, throughout his gospel, really wishes to convey a specific idea of glory, namely the, the divine glory that shines in humble, selfless, sacrificial service. And so Jesus' supreme act of humble, selfless, sacrificial service was performed in his atoning death on the cross. And you see, that is where his glory shines forth as the first step in answer to this petition. Jesus spoke explicitly of his cross, that the, 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 uh, his lowest humiliation as the hour of his being lifted up in glory. As for example, in chapter 12, when Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I, when I am lifted up, speaking of the cross there, will draw all people to myself. The cross of Christ, though shameful from the world's perspective, is paradoxically a moment of great glory for the Father and the Son. On the cross, the Savior is lifted up physically, but for those with eyes to see, he is also exalted as the Lord of glory there. He is revealed as the one who will endure even an ignoble form of execution for the sake of his people. So much does he love us. So much does he love you. And the Father in turn is glorified because in the Son's giving himself, we see the Father's willingness to give up his Son out of his love for us so much does he love us? You see. And we also see in the cross the magnification of the justice of the Father and the Son, as together they work to satisfy God's righteous judgment against sin so that we can be forgiven and embraced in his love and reconciled. So in essence, if I may paraphrase, Jesus is saying something like this, Father, the hour has come. Give glory to your Son by carrying him through the cross and the grave to a triumphant completion of the work he came to do, and by placing him at your right hand and highly exalting him above every name that is named. Do this, Lord, in order that he may be glorified and glorify you. Do this, that he may bring fresh glory to your holiness and justice and mercy and love and faithfulness and prove to the world that you are a just and holy and merciful God that keeps his word. My vicarious death, my resurrection will prove this and bring glory to you. Father, finish the mighty work. Glorify me. And in so doing, glorify yourself.
And then this thought of glory continues into verse 2. Jesus continues, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Here Jesus speaks of a threefold gift. You might have noted the Father has gifted the Son authority, absolute and all-encompassing authority over all flesh. But he has also gifted him a people to be saved. And now our Savior declares that the purpose for which the Father has gifted him absolute and all-encompassing authority over all flesh was so that he could gift eternal life to all those gifted to him by the Father. And this purpose statement in verse 2 corresponds precisely to the purpose which was expressed back in verse 1. In other words, the expression when Jesus says, that the Son of Man may glorify you, that the Son may glorify you, corresponds precisely to the expression that the Son should give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So then when we take into account this close connection between the two statements, we come to see and realize that what, Je what Jesus is saying, namely, that the Son was to glorify the Father by communicating eternal life to as many as the Father had given him. And what a blessed combination indeed. The glory of the Father and the eternal life of his people. So we want to rejoice to know that in the cross these two are are gloriously harmonized. It is just as if our Lord said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you by giving eternal life to as many as you have given him. If we learn nothing else from the opening words of Jesus' high priestly prayer, it is crucial to recognize this, that in Jesus' mind, in our Lord's consciousness, the chief end of his saving work, and therefore the primary goal of our salvation, is the glory of God the Father. And who does not perceive in this the security, the, the absolute certainty of the final salvation of all God's chosen people? See, if the Father has given to the Son absolute and all-encompassing authority for this very purpose, that he should bestow on them eternal life, how can they possibly come short of it? It's impossible. Though earth and hell should combine against the Lord and his anointed, God's purpose shall stand. It shall be accomplished. All attempts to thwart it are weaker than a cobweb in the face of a fully loaded cannon, we might say. In a word, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, continuing on to verse 3, having just mentioned the free gift of eternal life, our Lord Jesus goes on to trace the very close and profound connection which there is between the bestowal of this gift and the glorifying of the Father. And for this purpose, he pauses to sort of contemplate or, or, or express the, the, the nature of eternal life. He describes its real essential character. And this is the definition which he gives of it. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
And we, so we notice here, it is not said merely that this is the way or the path to eternal life, but this is eternal life, namely to know you, Jesus says. Uh, eternal life, then, is not a matter of unending existence or, or endless life, but it, is, it, it consists of the knowledge of God. This is what the prophets foretold, that when God had brought his salvation, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Jeremiah foresaw the new covenant and promised that it, it, that it would bring salvation, noting that it, it, one of its core blessings is this, the, the knowledge of God. This very thing Jesus is speaking of. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. The question is therefore raised, what does it mean to know God? And sort of the initial answer is that knowing God means being informed about his character and, and the, the nature of the true God, what God is really like. Because unless we know the truth about who God is, we can hardly be said to enjoy eternal life. But we must never stop there. It's not merely to know about God, as if only in your head. It is to know God in your heart. It is to experience God redemptively at, in the very core of your being. It is to enter into a personal and close covenantal relationship with God. So the knowledge that it involves is not the, that of detached you know, academic awareness but intimate, personal communion and fellowship. It is that living, personal, and experiential knowledge in view. It is the knowledge of love, the knowing God as a, as a friend, the impression on the heart of the greatness of his love and the glory of his justice and the beauty of his holiness. But how am I to get at the true and saving knowledge of the only true God? And the answer, of course, is that it is only, as Jesus suggests of course, here, it is only in and through Jesus Christ whom he has sent. As Calvin said, God is known only in the face of Jesus Christ, who is his exact and living image. As the New Testament puts it, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so this means that not only that Jesus is like the Father in every respect of his being and character, but that the Father may equally be said to be like Jesus, his Son, Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Accordingly, the only way to know God, as politically incorrect as this may sound, is through the revelation that he has made and he has revealed himself in his Son. 
It is not possible, in other words, to know God in any way that we choose. We must know him in him whom he has sent, namely Jesus Christ, his son. And as the next sort of lines go on to trace out, the, this knowledge of God comes not only through the, the person of Christ being the, the uh, radiance of the glory of God and exact imprint of his nature and so forth, but also, and in no way can be separated from uh, being, uh, coming to us through his saving work, his redemptive work. In verse 4, he says to the Father, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And you'll see you know, throughout the Gospels that our Lord's life and ministry Throughout our Lord's life and ministry, he referred constantly to being sent by the Father on a saving mission, saying that he must work the works of him who sent me. And now praying here on the brink of his arrest, Jesus looks upon his whole life with a perfectly clean conscience and sees the, 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 the completion of the work given to him by God speaking of having fully accomplished it. And this encompassed all that he had done on earth, including his death on a cross. So praying in the disciples' hearing, uh, Jesus looked back on his taking up a human nature, his perfect lifelong obedience to God's holy law, and sinless resistance to every temptation, Sort of as if our Lord is saying, Father, I've done all that can be done to glorify you in my earthly state. You gave me a work to do. I finished it. I gave it the last stroke. And it's been rightly said that Christ alone, only him, that he is the only person who ever lived who could possibly say this? He did what the first Adam failed to do, and that all the saints in every age failed to do, including us. He kept the law perfectly, and by doing so, brought in everlasting righteousness for all those who believe. Paul, the apostle, um, explains this in Romans 5, how Christ's covenantal perfection is the foreordained remedy for Adam's covenant failure and ours. When he says, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And at this juncture, all that remained was for Jesus to bear the cross. To go to the cross as his sovereign will was committed to do. By his perfect life lived on our behalf, Jesus provided the righteousness that his people lacked in themselves. But that we need, and, and that righteousness which we, we must possess in order to stand in the holy presence of God. And now Jesus would prove obedient unto death to redeem us from the guilt of our sin. Remember how Isaiah speaks of this? 
I love the passage in Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession. He makes intercession for the transgressors. <clears throat> and then having mentioned what he had already done to glorify the Father on earth, the work that he had accomplished in verse 4, in verse 5, Jesus now repeats the one prayer with which he began when he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. And if you ask what that means, I can only say it ex it's explained in the words which follow when Jesus adds, With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, Christ had a glory with the Father before the world existed from all eternity. The eternal Son of God. That glory, of course, was veiled uh, or uh, eclipsed when he uh, tabernacled upon the earth in the flesh. He temporarily divested himself of that glory when he became incarnate, when he be took upon himself our nature, even while he glorified the Father by finishing the work given him to do as our representative with this glory you see he now seeks or beseeches his father to be reinvested not however uh, not simply as before something important has changed he seeks to be reinvested not how not simply as before but now in our own nature as the God-man mediator. This prayer has been answered. What Jesus here asks, Jesus has received. There's no doubt about that. Christ is now glorified in our nature as the God-man and mediator at God's right hand. The same John who wrote this gospel himself would see that glory uh, when Jesus appeared to him on the Isle of Patmos in the opening vision of the book of Revelation, for example. John tells us that he saw Jesus in glory, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, uh, like white wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And then John says, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And you see this vision there. It shows us that Jesus has indeed entered into the glory for which he prayed on the night of his arrest. It shows that God has indeed highly exalted him. 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And now in bringing this morning's remarks to a close, observe with me the twofold end which Christ had in view in offering up this prayer. The glory of the Father and the salvation of his people. Congregation, what do we make the chief end of our existence? And do we resemble our Savior in this? Oh, let us remember as well that we can never glorify God except by becoming partakers of that eternal life which consists in the knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And also notice the ground on which our Lord prayed for his being glorified, namely his finished work, his cross. The cross is the foundation of all the glory that now envelops and encompasses him as mediator. And it was on this ground that he prayed to be reinvested with his glory. And O congregation, let us rest assured of it, that it is only through the cross that we can ever reach the crown. May the Lord enable us to say, far be it from me that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray together.